For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. For our text this evening, Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, the title of our sermon, The Two Witnesses. So welcome back now to our study, Sunday evening study uh, of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, where tonight, again, we're continuing our work through Revelation chapter 11. And once again, as we consider Revelation 11, we want to begin this text by reminding ourselves of the context. Where are we in the book? How do we get here? And where are we going? Okay. We want to remind ourselves of the progression. In the book of Revelation, there are seven literary cycles in the book that recapitulate or they repeat essentially the same period of time, that time between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. That period described in the Bible as the last days, the days of tribulation or the church age. Now, although those seven cycles are represented in the book or presented in the book as one after the other, it would be more correct to see them as running parallel to one another, right? Each cycle essentially paralleling the same period of time. Again, these uh, depictions of these last days, that period between the first coming and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we find ourselves now in the third of those seven literary cycles, the cycle of trumpets. And with each iteration of that literary pattern, we're being pressed, as it were, with increasing intensity against those events which comprise the end of this age, the return of the Lord and the great day of his wrath, the great day of his judgment. With each cycle now communicating with increasing urgency or increasing intensity, we can sense a bit of progression as we work through those literary cycles, a bit of progression in that intensity. And that's why we use the term progressive parallelism to describe the structure of the book. We have each of these seven literary cycles iterating the same period of time, but each cycle pressing us further and further against the events of the end of the age and increasing intensity, right? And increasing severity. And so we call the structure, we refer to the structure of the book as a progressive parallelism. Our text this evening in chapter 11, verses one through six, is part of a larger parenthesis or part of a larger interlude that is situated between the blast of the sixth and seventh trumpets in this literary cycle. Like the seal judgments or that second literary cycle in the book, the trumpets emphasize the outpouring of God's wrath upon unbelieving earth dwellers during this age. The wrath of God is not only a future reality poured out in a future seven-year period at the end of the age, the wrath of God, that's Romans chapter 1, is presently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We see that in our own experience, don't we? The wrath of God being poured out as God, in the language of Romans chapter 1, delivers over sinners to a debased mind, delivers over sinners to do that which is not fitting, not appropriate, not suitable. So the judgments of God 
decreed for the wicked during this time period, during this age, are presently being poured out. We see that in these cycles. Demon hordes have been unleashed. They're wreaking havoc upon the earth. And the devil, having been cast down, now prowls, seeking whom he may devour. Now, it's in the the heat, if you will, the intensity of that picture being portrayed for the Apostle John, that in this parenthesis, our hearts and minds, the eyes of our faith, are redirected for a moment to consider the church. As the judgments of God are being poured out against the wicked, we now are given a break and interlude to consider what the church is doing during this time period. Our eyes, the eyes of our faith, are called to direct, are called to consider the church. This is a literary pause. It's a little breath, if you will, in the action, a pause in the action to consider the work of the church. In that parenthesis between the sixth and seventh seals, we saw a picture of the church militant, arrayed for battle in the encampment of Israel. And then we saw a picture of the church triumphant, worshiping around the throne in heaven. It's in this parenthesis now, between the sixth and seventh trumpets, we also see a picture of the church. In the midst of this tempest that surrounds us, in the midst of these judgments being poured out upon the earth, God delivering the wicked to the consequences of their sin, we see God's people the church depicted in their work as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost like we're saying, okay, all these judgments are being poured out. This is what's going on on, in the world at this time, during this age. What's going on with the church? And there's a brief look at what the church is doing during this time, okay? So at this point then, in this literary parenthesis between the sixth and seventh trumpet, John has been commissioned, recommissioned as God's eschatological prophet. Right? John is bearing witness to what he sees and what he hears. And like those prophets that have come before him, these events revealed to John reveal a rich tapestry, if you will, of types and symbols that are rooted in Old Testament history. It's as though John takes his pen, he dips it in the inkwell of the Old Testament, and now he's writing New Testament revelation to us about the end of the age. All of those types and shadows, all of that, that, those types, that symbolism from the Old Testament, we're shown to be fulfilled now in the consummated work of Jesus Christ in this age. In the visions given to John, the Lord weaves together themes that have been developed in Scripture over millennia, themes that have been developed in redemptive history over millennia. And he demonstrates, we're going to see in Revelation, how those themes are revealed at the end of the age, how they're fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the visions given to John, the Lord is weaving together those themes. And we're reminded in these cycles of the Lord's soon return at the end of the age to consummate all things. That, brothers and sisters, as we consider those things in their context should cause us to long for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ should cause us to be encouraged in our work. When you know where we are situated in God's redemptive plans and purposes, when when we know where we are living, so to speak, where we're serving in these last days in God's purposes, it gives us encouragement to push forward, gives us encouragement to continue, and cause us to to endure uh, in Christ to the end. Remember when the Lord met with his disciples in the upper room, before his crucifixion in John 13. The Lord Jesus Christ begins telling them what is going to happen to them in their ministry after he departs via the cross. Right? He explains to his disciples the suffering that they're going to endure, the difficulties that they're going to face, the adversity that they're going to face. 
And he does that. He tells them he does that so that they know when those things come about that he told them about them beforehand. And why would that encourage them? That would encourage them because the Lord is sovereign over all things whatsoever that come to pass. The Lord doesn't only know the future. The Lord has scripted the future and the Lord has prepared all of those things. They're a part of God's redemptive purposes and plans. You and I, brothers and sisters, as Members of the Lord's church, we are a part. We have a valuable place, if you will, in the redemptive plans and purposes of God. We have a part to to play. Knowing our part should encourage us to run the race set before us and to do that with faithfulness should encourage the Lord's people in their work. So in this literary parenthesis then that lies between the sixth and seventh trumpets, John is first recommissioned as God's eschatological prophet in chapter 10, And then in the opening verses of chapter 11, John is then given the task of measuring the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. So in our study then of verses 1 and 2, we first examine the significance of that charge from Old Testament prophets. Again, John is dipping his pen, if you will, in the ink of the Old Testament to communicate to us about these events happening at the end of the age. And so we looked at how John being commissioned as God's eschatological or end times prophet is typological, is in keeping with a pattern established in the Old Testament in the prophecies of Ezekiel, Daniel, Haggai, and Zechariah. In that charge for John to measure the temple, those who worship there, God is marking off for himself true worshipers. Those who worship in the most holy place by virtue of the blood of Christ And God has set a boundary around them and has distinguished them. In that measurement, God has distinguished those on the inside from those on the outside. Those who worship in the naos, the most holy place, and those who are outside trampling the court, the outer court underfoot. Those on the inside, those are his worshipers. Those on the inside, they are his temple. His presence is established in their midst. Those people, they themselves are his sanctuary. And the outer court there, the holy city, has been given over to be trampled underfoot by the nations. The nations, in other words, have taken over the outer court and the holy city. And again, remember that outer court, that holy city associated with the worship of God. But what do we see now in the place of true worship? We see false worship. It's a picture of the nations, the world infiltrating the professing church, or infiltrating the worship of God. It's a picture of the difference between true worship in the naos, in the most holy place, and false worship in the outer court being trampled by the nations. Now, as we've established, the time period for which these outer courts and the holy city are given over is representative of the church age. It's during this period of the church age, this period that extends from the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ Till a second that John writes now of the testimony of the Lord's two witnesses. These two witnesses in Revelation 11 testify during the time of the Gentiles. That's verses three through six. When they finish their testimony, they're going to be martyred. They're going to be killed, verses seven through 10. And then they are raised from the dead just before the sounding of the last trumpet and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ verses 11 through 13. So let's consider these two witnesses together from our text. John begins our text this evening with a description of these two witnesses. Verse three. 
the angel that John is, is speaking with John, the angel says, and I will give power, verse three, to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So from their very, the very start at the outset, I want you to notice that we're dealing with a lot of symbolism in these verses. These are symbolic um, visions given to John, and this is rich with symbolism. Now think with me, it's in the context of God's presence in the midst of his people. God has measured off the people who are worshiping him in the most holy place. God's presence is among them, and it's from the context of God's presence now in the midst of his worshiping people in his eschatological temple that God from there gives power to his two witnesses. In other words, it's God's presence in the midst of his people as his temple that ensures their effective witness. They don't witness without the power of God being given to them. They serve as witnesses of God, in, as witnesses with God in their midst and with God as the source of their strength, with God as the source of their enablement. So the Lord in the midst of his people says, I will give power to my two witnesses. Now notice first, the great angel that's speaking with John, that angel that we identified with the Lord himself in chapter 10, this great angel refers to his two witnesses. They are his. So again, this angel associated with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and he commissions his two witnesses. He sends them, gives them his power. Now the word there again for witness, we talked about that this morning in, in Romans chapter 10. These are his two martusi, or the word translated there, a witness refers to uh, that word from which we get our word martyr, right? It's these two martyrs, these two witnesses that will be killed for their witness in verse seven. Look at verse seven with me. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, will overcome them and kill them. Verse eight, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And notice again, we're dealing with typology. We're dealing with symbolism. That great city, which we know to be Jerusalem, where the Lord was crucified, right, is spiritually called Sodom. It's spiritually called Sodom for a reason. It's spiritually called Egypt for a reason. Why is that? Because the outer court and the holy city has been delivered over to the nations to trample it underfoot. It's no longer, if you will, the holy city. It's being trampled underfoot by the nations. It's been given over to the nations. And there's this distinction between those who worship in the most holy place and those who are outside trampling the holy city underfoot. These two witnesses are, and the word there for witness is the word where we get our word martyr from. They are martusi. They are two witnesses who will be killed for their witness. We discussed that this morning from Luke chapter 10. The testimony that they bear is uh, where we get our word martyr from. The verb form of the word is martyreo. They are witnessing. Uh, and again, the idea, the notion is that these two witnesses are going to be persecuted, that they're going to face suffering, that they're eventually going to be killed. Now, the first question often raised regarding this text has to do with the identity of these two witnesses. Who are they? 
right? We're going to have time to consider a portion of this tonight, and we'll finish up uh, next week considering their identity. But many have surmised from this text that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah, raised from the dead. I want you to consider this with me. The first part of verse 6 actually refers to the actions of Elijah. Elijah prophesied to the northern tribes of Israel during a period of great drought. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah says to Ahab, king, the wicked king Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. So what did Elijah do? Elijah shut up heaven to rain. He caused a drought. That's the judgment of God against the wicked northern kingdom of, under wicked King Ahab. It's from there that Elijah is told to flee into the wilderness where God cares for him with bread and meat, with manna and meat from the ravens. God nourishes and cares for Elijah in the wilderness. The two witnesses now in Revelation chapter 11 are described in verse 6 as those who have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. In other words, there's a connection in our text being drawn between the prophecy or the work of Elijah the prophet and these two witnesses. Do you see that connection? Okay. Now the last part of verse 6, the last part of this verse 6 also refers to the actions of Moses. Moses prophesied against Egypt at the time of the Exodus. Moses was the means through which God poured out his judgments, his plagues against Egypt. And in reference to those plagues, the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, verse 6, are described as those who, quote, have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So what is the Lord doing so far in Revelation chapter 11? He's connecting the work of these two witnesses in Revelation 11 to the work of Elijah and to the work of Moses, two Old Testament prophets, right? There's a pattern being established. There's a pattern that was established by Elijah, a pattern established by Moses, and we're following in that pattern with these two, these two witnesses in Revelation 11, okay? But notice though also verse 5. Verse 5 also references the prophetic mission of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 5, God commissions Jeremiah to prophesy against the southern tribes of Judah. Right? Elijah prophesying against the northern tribes, Moses prophesying against the Egyptians, and now Jeremiah prophesying against the southern tribes of Judah. And the, he's prophesying against the southern tribes of Judah before they're carried off in exile to Babylon. God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 14, listen to this. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word, behold, Jeremiah, I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it, my word, shall devour them. Okay, now think with me. Jeremiah, the prophet, did not literally breathe fire out that devoured the people. Did he? No, what is God speaking of there? God is speaking figuratively. The word of God that proceeded forth from his mouth judged the people as though by fire. And it would be the people's rejection of that word from the prophet Jeremiah that would terminate upon their torment in the fires of hell. So there is a connection between the word that Jeremiah preached and the fires of judgment. Do you see? 
God uses that figurative language then to describe the prophetic ministry of Jeremiah. I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and my word will devour them. There's a typological importance or significance to Jeremiah's words. There's a figurative significance to Jeremiah's words, but there is also a literal outcome to Jeremiah's words attached to that symbolism, okay? Now, in reference to the prophetic ministry of Jeremiah, the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, verse 5, are given the same power. Verse 5, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm, harm them, he must be killed in this manner. In other words, if anyone wants to reject their testimony, rejects their witness, wants to persecute them, right, wants to martyr them, if you will, they're going to suffer the same result as those did who rejected the words of Jeremiah the prophet. Think with me. Like Jeremiah, the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 will not literally breathe fire. It's in the, the same manner, do you see? This is the way that God figuratively describes the very real judgment associated with rejecting his word and rejecting the word that is proclaimed from the mouth of his sanctioned witnesses, right? It's the very real connection. The two witnesses will not be Jeremiah reincarnate. They're not going to be Jeremiah raised from the dead. Jeremiah is a type. Jeremiah establishes a pattern. Jeremiah is a picture, if you will, of the prophetic ministry of these two witnesses during the eschatological end times period between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is describing the work of his two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 in typological terms. They're going to follow the pattern of Jeremiah. They're going to follow the pattern of Elijah. They're going to follow the pattern of Moses. The two witnesses in Revelation 11 will not be Moses and Elijah reincarnate. You're not going to be Elijah and Moses raised from the dead. Let me give you an example. In Malachi, Old Testament prophet, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, God promised this to the children of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. God says to Israel, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. So how did the Jews interpret that promise? They looked for a literal return of Elijah the prophet. <laughs> Elijah the prophet raised from the dead. In the days of the Messiah, Elijah the prophet would come. They were looking for a literal return of Elijah. However, who was it who fulfilled that prophecy, that promise? It was fulfilled in the work of John the Baptist, right? It was John the Baptist who fulfilled that prophecy in Luke chapter 1, where John the Baptist came, verse 17, in the spirit and power of Elijah. God was speaking figuratively. He was speaking typologically. Elijah set a pattern. Elijah was a type of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist prophesied, if you will, preached, if you will, in the pattern established by Elijah. In other words, John the Baptist would have a similar ministry. God was speaking figuratively of the role that John the Baptist would fulfill and speaking typologically in reference to the prophetic ministry of the prophet Elijah. Now, that again, uh, this is a point that's come up quite a bit today already. If you do not acknowledge and if you do not understand God's use of typology 
and God's use of symbolism in the Bible, then you will make a dispensational mess of your eschatology. Okay, we've got to understand symbolism and we've got to understand typology in order to understand what's being communicated to us through this rich use of symbolism in the Old Testament. The two witnesses of Revelation 11, therefore, are patterned after Old Testament examples. It's a connection, if you will, to the Old Testament, and it's a furtherance, if you will, a continuation, if you will, of that Old Testament prophetic ministry. Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah all suffered greatly for their witness. They witnessed to a people who had come under the judgment of God for their idolatry, and yet it was God's presence with them by his spirit that enabled them, and it was God's word in their mouth that went forth in power. God's word had the power. So the two witnesses in Revelation 11 go forth in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. They go forth in the spirit and in the power of Moses. They go forth in the spirit and in the power of Jeremiah. These Old Testament witnesses are typological of these New Testament, New Testament witnesses. So in that then, we have established who they are not. They're not going to be Moses, Elijah, and Jeremiah raised from the dead. Well, that begs the question then, doesn't it? Who are they? Who are they? Now, first, Notice first when it is that they witness. These are going to help us determine the identity of these two witnesses. Notice when it is that they witness. Verse three, this angel, angel of the Lord in verse three says, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They prophesy for 1,260 days. It's another way of referencing the very same period of time that is mentioned in verse two, the same period of time that we established as the time of the Gentiles, that reference to 42 months. 1,260 days is 42 months, it's three and a half years, it's times, time, and half a time, okay? Now, we've been through this detail before with respect to this time reference in Revelation. This is a reference to Daniel's 70th week. 70 weeks, uh, Daniel chapter nine, 70 weeks are appointed to put an end to transgression, to, to usher in everlasting righteousness, right? 70 weeks determined for the history of redemption, if you will, for the consummation of all things. One week remains, Daniel's 70th week. This time period points back to Daniel's 70th week, which is split into two periods, three and a half years, if you will, times, times, and half a time. Now, there are those who take that time period literally. I want, again, to communicate to you that these things are symbolic. From clear examples in the New Testament, this period of time references the church age, the times of the Gentiles. Look with me at Revelation chapter 12. And just quickly, I want to, each time we come back to this, I want to stir us up by way of reminder, help us put this together if you haven't done so already. I want to remind us of where we look to get an explanation of this time period. Revelation chapter 12, look at verse 13 there. After the woman, the woman here is representative of true Israel. She has the garland of 12 stars on her head. She gives birth to a male child that's caught up into heaven and to his throne, right? This is, um, if you will, symbolic of Mary, but more broadly, this woman is symbolic of true Israel, the true people of God, right? And Jesus Christ comes from Israel. 
after she gives birth to the male child who is caught up to his throne, that's Jesus Christ, she flees into the wilderness from the presence of the serpent. That serpent, that dragon, later identified as Satan. Just like Elijah. Do you remember the the account of Elijah? Elijah flees into the wilderness, persecuted by Ahab and Jezebel. The woman here, representative of the people of God, is nourished there by God, just like Elijah was in the wilderness, nourished there with manna and meat, taken care of, nourished by God. The dragon, Revelation chapter 12, being enraged, goes and makes war with the rest of her offspring. And the rest of her offspring are described as those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who is that describing? Christians, right? Those are believers. Those are the people of God. The dragon, being enraged, goes and makes war with her offspring. In other words, Satan, enraged, knowing that he has a short time, goes and persecutes Christians, goes and persecutes God's witnesses. And the people of God are persecuted in the wilderness. They're persecuted in that place that has been turned over to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, outside the Naos, right? In that place where the Gentiles are making hay. (laughs) In the place which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, outside the camp where our Lord also was crucified. So the people of God are dispersed into the wilderness where our Lord was crucified. And it's there in the wilderness, verse 14, they're there for times, time, and half a time. Now think with me. When the Lord was crucified... He, was, he ascended into heaven. We're going to look at this text in a second, but in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the risen Lord told his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, to stay in Jerusalem until power was given from them on high. What does the Lord say here in Revelation 11? I'm going to give power to my two witnesses. So the disciples of the Lord are to stay in Jerusalem until they're endued with power from on high. After they are endued with power from God, they witness in the very same city where the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. One of the more compelling evidences, if you will, to lost people who don't believe the Bible, that the Bible is true, that the disciples actually saw the risen Christ is the fact that those disciples went right back into the same city that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and they preached the gospel there, preached the gospel to their own deaths. Nobody does that for a lie. They saw the resurrected Lord and it compelled them to serve him in that way. Do you see? They go right back into Jerusalem. What happens in Jerusalem? We immediately see the martyrdom on the Temple Mount of Stephen. Someone Paul refers to as God's servant, God's martyr, God's witness. Stephen is martyred and what happens? All of the believers are dispersed throughout Judea, going everywhere. And what were they doing as they went? They went everywhere preaching the word. They're dispersed. They flee, as it were, into the wilderness. They're fleeing into the wilderness where they're witnessing. And again, all that takes place immediately after the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're there in the wilderness testifying to the Lord Jesus Christ for times, time, and half a time. What does that time period signify? It tells us to look back. Look back at what Daniel the prophet said and acknowledge that what is happening here is that. That time period from the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to his return 
described in scripture as times, time, and half a time, references Daniel's 70th week, and the Bible is saying this period is that. It's pointing us, connecting us to Daniel. Make sense? The time period is a reference to the last period of redemptive history before the end of this age and the return of Jesus Christ. It's a reference to Daniel's 70th week. It's a reference to the church age and the times of the Gentiles. Incidentally, as we'll see, it's the same period of time given to the beast and the false prophet in Revelation 13. So what do we know so far then? What do we know so far? The two witnesses of Revelation 11 testify of the Lord Jesus Christ during the extent of the church age. Now think about that for a moment. They're witnessing during the extent of the church age, the entire time of this cycle, right? The entire time of each of these literary cycles, from the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to his return, these two witnesses are prophesying during this time. They're prophesying in the wilderness. In other words, they're out in the world. They're not testifying in the naos, so to speak. That's where the people of God worship. They're in the courts that have been turned over to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. They witness for the duration of this cycle until the Lord Jesus Christ returns during the times of the Gentiles and the entirety of that time that the outer court and the holy city are trampled underfoot. We know that they go forth in the spirit and in the power of Old Testament witnesses, Old Testament prophets of God, The word of God proceeds from their mouths in power and they're going to be persecuted for it. They suffer for it. Eventually, they're going to be killed for it. And verse three, they are clothed in sackcloth. Representative of mourning. Mourning associated certainly with their own repentance, right? but mourning associated with the judgment that their message will bring upon many to whom they witness like an Old Testament prophet. There will be those we talked about in the prophecy of Isaiah this morning. There will be many who will not hear their words and there will be those who will. Those who who do not hear their words, Luke chapter 10, they reject the Lord Jesus Christ and they're rejecting the father who sent him. And there is a judgment being made against them in the testimony of these witnesses. So they mourn, they clothe themselves in sackcloth. Sackcloth was the attire of the Old Testament prophets. Elijah, John the Baptist were attired in sackcloth. And we know, verse three, that God supplies them with power to complete their mission. The Lord Jesus Christ meeting with his disciples after he was raised from the dead, he commanded them, turn with me to Acts chapter one. Let's look at that text together. Acts chapter one. After the Lord was raised from the dead, he met with his disciples In Acts chapter one, he gives them instructions. Look there with me at verse four. The Lord Jesus tells them, do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me. Verse five, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, verse six, when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this going to be the consummation of all things? Are you going to establish your kingdom on the earth? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the father has put in his own authority. But here's here's what's gonna happen, verse eight. 
you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They're going to receive power. Think with me for a moment about a common misconception. All believers, all believers, all those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all believers, they believe because they are born again. They're born again. In the words of Moses from Deuteronomy 30, they have a circumcised heart. All born again believers from Adam to you are then indwelt by the Spirit of God. Did Abraham have the Spirit of God? Yes, he did. It's how Abraham obeyed God. It's how Abraham persevered in his faith. It's how Abraham was able to put his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a circumcised heart. He was caused to be born again. You see? And all believers who are saved are saved by virtue of the new covenant. And so all believers receive all of the blessings associated with the new covenant. It's not that Old Testament believers receive some of the blessings associated with the new covenant and New Testament believers receive all of the blessings associated with the new covenant. All believers saved through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ receive all of the blessings associated with the new covenant. And what is one of those blessings? The indwelling Holy Spirit. God says in Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and judgments and to do them and keep them, right? So in order for Abraham, in order for Adam, in order for Moses, in order for Elijah, for any of them, for Caleb to have wholly followed the Lord. How did Caleb do that? Did he do that in his own strength? No, he did not. He did that in the power of the Spirit, the Spirit of God dwelling within him. All believers have the Spirit of God. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is more about mission. It's about mission. God supplies his witnesses with power by his Spirit to accomplish church age witness, church age mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay in Jerusalem, right? Stay in Jerusalem, he said to the disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. What is the power for? What the Spirit is going to come upon them in power to what end? That they would be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. This is a promise to the new covenant church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the new covenant church will go forth in power as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a promise to all disciples, to all disciples. We are empowered by his spirit to be his witnesses. So then, think with me in light of all of that, in light of all of that, and we'll continue with more examples next week. Who are the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11? The two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, they are a reference to the church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who were those measured in verse one? Those who worship in the naos, the people of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are worshiping in the most holy place by virtue of the blood of Jesus Christ, the new covenant people of God, the church. Verse four, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. These are his two witnesses. The lampstand 
is described in Exodus chapter 25, verse 31. A lampstand is to be placed near the most holy place in the temple. It's to be a lampstand of pure gold just beyond the table of showbread or often called the bread of presence, representing the presence of God. As we've already seen in Revelation chapter one, what do the lampstands represent? They represent the church. They represent the church. The lights atop the lampstand emanating with the power of God, emanating, emanating with the word of God. Those lights are the people of God. They shine as lights in the firmament. Lights atop the lampstand representing believers. And that light supplied with oil to burn, signifying the presence of God by his spirit. The imagery of both olive trees and lampstands, that imagery, as we've seen, comes from Zechariah chapter four, where the olive trees are literally sons of oil. Olive trees described there as sons of oil. They're prophets. We'll have to consider that more in detail next week. If you remember the context of Zechariah 4, hostile forces are working against the building of the temple. Zechariah is prophesying. Zerubbabel has been given charge. Joshua, the high priest, given charge to rebuild the temple. There are hostile forces arrayed against him. In the vision given to Zechariah, God promises his people that he will supply power to his two sons of oil, that he will supply power to the lampstands. Opposition will be overcome and the glorious new temple of God will be completed. The Lord says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, God will supply the oil to the sons of oil, the two olive trees. That oil is used to light the lamps atop the lampstands. G.K. Beale said, Despite resistance, the church's successful establishment as God's temple throughout the church age is assured by means of the Spirit's empowerment of the church's faithful prophetic witness. Now put that together with me for a moment. God is going to give power to his witnesses. He supplies them with power by his Spirit, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He supplies his witnesses with power and they go forth and testify. They testify to the Lord Jesus Christ. As they testify to the Lord Jesus Christ, what's happening? The end times temple is being rebuilt. Living stone upon living stone. We are all living stones in a great house, the Lord said, being built up on the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. That temple is being built just as God promised. Verse four, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. They stand before the God of the earth as though bearing witness in the courtroom of heaven. You remember from this morning in Luke chapter 10, those 70 disciples, they went out two by two. Remember the significance of going out two by two. They went out two by two, quorum Deo, before the face of God. Here, these witnesses, they bear witness before the God of the earth, before the face of God. And remember, this answers the question why there are two witnesses and not one. Why is the church referenced here as the two witnesses of God and not one? Why are there two sons of oil and not one? The number two is a reference to Old Testament law and the necessity of two witnesses to settle any matter. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. In verse 15, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, 
by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So what does God do? God sends his two witnesses. We see the use of this term witness expanded now to include its legal sense as well. There is a legal import to their work as New Testament witnesses. More on all that next time. I hope that makes sense so far. This is a difficult text, but I I promise you, brothers and sisters, the more that we understand it, the more that we can meditate on that, commit that to our understanding, the more that we can apply it in our own hearts and minds as we consider our place in this age. And what it is that we're to do? We are called to be eschatological witnesses. John is commissioned as a witness, if you will, in Revelation chapter 10. And now we see the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, commissioned as his two witnesses during this age. We prophesy, we testify between the first coming and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we preaching? Christ crucified. (laughs) The gospel, we're preaching the gospel. What's happening at the preaching of the gospel? Some here, they put their faith and trust in, in Christ. They're indwelt by God's spirit. They're being built up a mighty temple in the Lord. And there are those who do not hear. And a judgment is made against them. They reject the word. They reject the Lord Jesus Christ and they will perish in the way. At the testimony of these witnesses, the Lord is magnified and God is bringing about all of those things decreed for the end of this age. What is our role? Brothers and sisters, we are witnesses. We are witnesses. There are so many people who attend churches today who claim the name of Christ, profess to be Christians and have absolutely no connection with the great commission given to us by our Lord. We are called to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to preach the gospel to our deaths if the Lord requires it. Just as brothers and sisters have done throughout the ages for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be witnesses. We are empowered by God to be witnesses. Have you ever thought like reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, or reading the the historical accounts of some of those witnesses who went to the stake for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you read their accounts and you think to yourself, Lord, you know my weakness. If we were put in the same position, would we testify to death? And I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, there is no way that we would in our own strength. It's by virtue of his power. God promises to come through with power by his spirit to come to the aid of those who are his people, who will testify to the truth as it is in Christ. And he will empower them to persevere. He will empower them to endure. We don't endure in our own strength. We don't endure in our own power. We cannot. We need the power of God and God promises to give it. And he promises to give it by his spirit. To what end? To what end? We can sit in our paneled houses and sit on our comfy sofas and flip through 137 streaming services to find whatever. No, we're called to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to serve him. We have been employed in the work of the gospel. We're to witness even unto death. We're going to see in Revelation chapter 11, the outcome of their witness. There are some who will be martyred for their witness. There are some who will go through great suffering. The Lord Jesus Christ said to the church, it has not only been appointed for you to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his name. All those who desire to live godly in this present age will suffer persecution. Why? 
because they opened their mouth as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. Let's take encouragement from that, brothers and sisters. That's been, uh, that is the, the role that we've been given. Our salvation draws near. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ draws near. Let us serve him in faith. Amen. Let's trust him. Let's serve him in the power of his spirit. But let's serve him. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the great commission. We thank you for the blessing, the privilege of serving you in this way. And Lord, we rejoice. We rejoice to take up the mantle of Elijah, to take up the mantle of Moses and Jeremiah, John the Baptist and the Apostle John, all those that went before us. We rejoice to take up that torch in our own generation and to preach the gospel even to our own deaths if necessary. And may it glorify and magnify your name. May the gospel run swiftly. Uh, may sinners come to repentant faith in Jesus Christ. May they be trophies of his grace in eternity and may your name be proclaimed. We love you and we thank you for this testimony you've given us in Revelation chapter 11. I pray, Lord, that we would take encouragement from it. We would understand it. We would apply it in our own heart and mind. We would serve you with zeal during this time of our wilderness pilgrimage until the Lord Jesus returns. For your glory, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.